Hello and welcome to the Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the Church's teaching who feel like they might not belong in the Church anymore and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the Kerygma, uh, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you. We're the Pope Francis Generation. Today we're joined by Brad Jursak, and the topic is Faith After Deconstruction. Welcome, Brad. Good to have you with us. Over to you, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, uh, so Brad, uh, here's his bio. He's the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, um, and Editor-in-Chief of uh, the Clarion Journal. He's also the author or co-author of a number of nonfiction and fiction books including the More Christ-like series. And um, today we'll be spending our time talking about um, his new book, Out of the Embers. Um, is it uh, the subtitles Faith After the Great Deconstruction? Is that right? That's correct, yes. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm ha having you on for a number of reasons, one being that I read his book over Christmas break, and uh, I loved it a lot. Um, but also because this, uh, this phenomenon or the labeling of deconstruction, I don't think it's a new thing, but the labeling of deconstruction um, has been around in the evangelical world for the past several years, but is now I've seen it becoming more and more a discussion within the Catholic world. Um, and I think that there's a lot of important things to talk about. Um, it's something that um, I've, I've experienced and that a lot of my peers as millennial Catholics have experienced and I think I think Brad brings a lot to the table in his discussion with this book, so uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I want to start um, with the first time I came across your work was um, maybe five years ago. Just a friend of mine on Facebook shared your video, uh, "A Gospel in Chairs," and I watched it, and then I watched it again. And I've probably gone back to it 20 times in the in the past few years. Sometimes when um, I'd recommend it to someone and I'd watch it again and I'd be like, man, I love this. Um, I've shared it in classes. Uh, it is, it has been a source of consolation for me and it's been one of the best proclamations of the Kerygma uh, that I have ever heard. So um, I want to start by talking about that. Um, what is that talk? Where does it come from? It looks like it's a part of a larger conference. I don't know. I just stumbled upon it and kind of fell in love with it. Yeah, thank you. So um, if viewers want to see it, the best version of it that I've done anyway is because we had two cameras and good sound. Um, you'd look on YouTube for Jursak, Chairs, and Denver, and you'll get to a 30-minute version. And in that 30-minute version, what I do is I talk about how uh, as I grew up and was trained and became a minister in the, in the evangelical and charismatic worlds, um, I inherited a gospel that I shared boldly and with enthusiasm. And, and then I began to see glitches in it. I feel like the gospel is perfect. It doesn't need to be improved, but our telling of it uh, needs to be upgraded wherever we see that it doesn't align with uh, the apostolic faith. And as I began to see these glitches, a lot of them were around 
uh, the idea of God being retributive and that if if you turn from him, he turns from you. And if you turn to him, then he'll turn back to you, which kind of puts us in the driver's seat around um, salvation. And, and it not only pits God against us, but even pits the father against the son in terms of the wrath of God being poured out. And we call that penal substitution. And that, I, that was my upbringing and my training. And then I ran into the Eastern Orthodox Church. I began being mentored by Archbishop Lazar, who's a, a monk uh, near where I live. I've known him now for 20 years. And, and in that context, I, I ran into the early church fathers and the ancient kerygma and a much more beautiful gospel, in my opinion, uh, one that has power in it. Even in the telling of it, I see transformation happening in front of my eyes, which is such an amazing um, uh, experience for me. And so um, the reason it's called the gospel in chairs is we use chairs as an illustration of, of our orientation towards or away from God. So I will turn the chair forward or away from and then in the first telling, God keeps turning away from us. But in the second telling, he keeps pursuing us relentlessly. And I lay that out. Um, I don't think we need an outline. We don't need principal points or anything like that. We have a story. The gospel is a story. And I, it, the grand drama of redemption shows this perpetual turning towards again and again. Well, um, while I love it and and have tried to popularize it. I didn't compose this. Um, really, I'm just reporting two versions of the gospel that I've heard. But the chairs idea came from an uh, Orthodox priest, I think in Colorado Springs, named Anthony Carbo, who I've never met and never seen him present it. But there is another Orthodox fellow, Steve Robins Robinson, who had, who had done a 10-minute version online, and I saw it. And uh, my friend Brian Zond uh, and I, we, we both thought, you know, we could do a more dramatic version of this that's going to um, grab people and that we can train others to do. And so we said, let's, hey, let's start a chair revival. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Brian's gone to India. He's trained 200 evangelists using the chair model. And I share it wherever I go. And it um, to see people's faces begin to almost contort and then explode with tears when they realize God is this good. And... Yeah. And it just generates repentance and worship. It's so, so I'm like, okay, we're getting warmer. Maybe we'll even 20 years from now, I hope it's upgraded much more in terms of my telling. But to move from a God who's an angry, punitive judge into a great physician who heals us by theosis, you know, this is, this is good news for us. Oh man, uh, Paul, you you shared that video with me a couple of years back, and I remember having that same reaction. And uh, it's kind of out of that that we started this podcast because it was, I'm just I watched that and I sat back and thought, I don't know my faith at all. If this is actually the faith, then the way that I've been brought up doesn't it doesn't work. It's not appropriate. It's not applicable. And um, and so we need to reexamine all of our catechesis. We need to relearn our faith. Actually, a big reason why I wanted to start Smart Catholics was because this sense of relearning is something that, you know, at the head level, we need to sort of clear out stuff and get back to the basics of, as you said, the kerygma, theosis, and the magisterium of the Holy Father is, is really, really forcing us to take that seriously. Well, it ties into the resourcement 
movement in the Catholic Church. I think that's exactly what they're doing. They're, you know, retrieving the ancient faith by listening to the Holy Fathers and mothers in the, uh, in the patristic period. And, and uh, you know, we have ways of losing our losing the plot. And this was an effort to, to um, remember it, really, re-member the kerygma as it was once taught. Yeah, how are you? Um, this is this. I'm kind of breaking up. Can you guys still hear me? Yes. Excellent. Um, as you were explaining that, so much of what you just said resonated with me. Um, about five, six years ago, there were two things that that happened that really transformed my faith. One was someone proclaimed the, uh, the idea of theosis to me, and I was like, "This can't be true." And then. Um, they're like, but actually it is. And it, uh, it took hold. And I was like, no, this is actually perhaps the most important thing. This is the thing that connects all the other things. This is what God desires of us. And then the other thing was Pope Francis, he's in his book, uh, the name of God is mercy. And I've shared this before a number of times. I read that book and then I read it again. And then I read it again. And I'm like, I want to believe in the God that Pope Francis believes in. Um, recognizing that I didn't. And since then, um, me and a ministry partner, we've preached probably 30 Kerygma retreats, just day-long retreats. And the experience you described of when you preach, when you tell this story, you see it work in people's lives right in front of you. Um, my friend says, my ministry partner, she says, uh, our job is simply to tell the best story better than we've told it before. That's all we're doing here. That's exactly um, right. And it's it's almost, um, I mean, it's it's not one of the sacraments, but it's like, it's sacramental. Like the words of the story itself, like grace accompanies that and transforms people right, like right before my eyes. And uh, it's an incredible experience. Well, I'd love to see you do the gospel and share that one of those <laughs> retreats. I think that would be powerful, you know, and it's right in line with your vision and and Pope Francis' vision. Yeah, I was shocked. Now, I mean, uh, I've been Catholic my whole life. I've heard of penal substitutionary atonement. I'm like, yeah, that's a thing Catholics don't believe in. Um, but then when I heard it, when I've heard it presented, I'm like, actually, I know a lot of Catholics who believe a lot of this. Yeah. Um, and the idea the proposal that God would be the one who's always pursuing us, no matter what. That is shocking news. It was shocking news to me. It's a shocking, shocking news to a lot of Catholics. Well, what a great passage we have in the Good Shepherd who goes down into the ditch to find the tangled up sheep. And it says um, that he searches, and my one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible, until he finds them. Yeah. You know what? Oh, this is the gospel. Yes. It is very much the gospel. Um, okay, so I want to spend this whole time talking about the video, but I actually want to talk about the book. So okay. um, like I said, you came out with a, a book a month or two ago called Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. Um, I read it. Um, it was healing for me. Um, it was healing for me and processing and moving out of a time where like... Um, like I've been harmed by the church and how has that impacted my relationship with God and how has that impacted my relationship with the church? Um, it was really good for me. And 
I've already started, I've already started recommending it uh, to several people. Um, Thank you. Who've shared similar experiences uh, that I've had. So, yeah, I, um, I want to talk about the book. Where did this idea come from? Um, what has the response been? Why a book about deconstruction? Okay. Well, so where the book comes from was my observations uh, that the, the this trendy deconstruction kind of topic that floats around has now virtually become a movement. And that movement looks like tens of millions of people leaving the church, leaving the faith, leaving Jesus Christ, or others where it's a liberation from false constructs um, of God, of, of Christianity, of, of Jesus. And in shedding those false constructs, they're actually finding Jesus. In fact, if you think about my chairs video, that's what I'm doing. I'm deconstructing. Absolutely. Um, in order not to cause people to abandon the faith, but to recover it or even discover it for the first time. So, so I'm watching this, this um, wave that becomes so trendy and I'm noticing two kinds of reactions to it. So the one reaction is, is, is the nervous pastor or priest who, who worries that deconstruction is basically just backsliding and apostasy. And they're trying to oppose it then and control the, and manage the situation and prevent people from the, their exodus from the church. And so then deconstruction is simply seen as this negative thing instead of part of the great tradition. But um, um, so to those hand-wringing pastors, I, 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 I'm saying like, this that's not working at all. <laughs> But the other side of the story is I'm, I was watching a lot of what I would call the deconstructionists and there, or even pop deconstructionists. And these would be the folks online and who influencers with podcasts. There's lots of podcasts with deconstruction in the name, even um, some of which are positive, but some are just like cheerleaders for, for leaving the faith. And so you get like on social media, hashtag empty the pews or hashtag burn it all down and and um and i'm watching these folks uh who, who just say you know follow your heart do whatever you're on the right track and so they're sort of blessing this exodus but what i'm getting is between those two extremes i'm getting all these dms you know direct messages and emails virtually every day of people who are experiencing this some it's a great liberation some it's a horrendous trauma and they're saying i didn't know i was gonna go from from let's say dysfunctional communions into alienation and isolation and so they've got a double double trauma of let's say something bad happened to them in the church and then they leave the church and the bad thing is that like I don't know who to talk to and I don't have, and now they'll say things like, and I'm losing Jesus. And I'm like, what, is he like this commodity? You did like, is he your wallet? You dropped out of your pocket? No, this is a living person who's within us who loves us and who's not leaving. So what's lost is we've lost our sight of him. We've lost our awareness. And so, um, so I weighed into this 
with the idea that we don't need to control it and we don't need to cheer it on. What we need is empathy for those who are really uh, struggling and and then to tell them, you're not crazy. Your questions are welcome. Your doubts are welcome. But uh, we need to uh, we we need to walk together in this and address the issue of alienation and see who the experts are who could be with us. Because you don't do like you don't invite a plumber to do major surgery. And I think that's a lot of these folks online are just plumbers and they're they're doing a half baked job of engaging deconstruction and it's not that they've gone too far it's that they haven't gone nearly far enough yeah. all the way to water to wine death and resurrection um so that's that that's what got me um you know motivated to address this and you asked how the the response has been it's been like surprisingly good um one surprise was that some of the people I think are pop deconstructionists actually love it. And they're like, oh, this is going to be the textbook. And then um, others in the church or pastors are saying, oh, this is really going to help me. So so both ends of that spectrum seem to be treating the book as helpful. The other thing that surprised me is so many reviews have come out that identified the primary word for the book was actually vulnerable. And I didn't realize I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess I was vulnerable. And now that you mentioned, I feel more vulnerable and even scared. <laughs> so um, that, but they're appreciating that. And maybe the vulnerability is what gave me the ability to have a voice in the conversation. Yeah. Um, I think, I think vulnerable is the right word. At one point in the book, you shared a dialogue that you had um, with someone who I think had experienced a lot of trauma and um, I have been in the Catholic charismatic world a little bit. Um, and I kind of recognize that um, uh, your own charismatic background when you're like, I think you just invited this person. Well, have you given that to Jesus? Um, and that idea of like, just giving that to Jesus. Uh, it's not like a magic word. And it's not a rote prayer. It's a vulnerable prayer. Yeah. It's like bearing your heart to the Lord and saying, I can't do anything with this. You need to do something with this. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot that's true in what you just said. It reminds me of, um, and this may have been in the book, of I think it's Richard Rohr uh, has a model where he's like, uh, it's deconstruction and then reconstruction. Um, like you have to pass through deconstruction. Um, but there's something on the other side of that. Um, but that deconstruction also involves harm. And I like that you were able to both affirm the experience of liberation and the experience of harm that happens yeah. even simultaneously in a person. Yeah. Um, there was a, a study that just came out a few weeks ago from Xavier University looking at uh, uh, looking at clerical sexual abuse in the Catholic church and how it causes moral injury, obviously yeah. causes trauma and a whole bunch of other things, but specifically moral injury as, um, being confronted with something that so violates our understanding of what's good and moral that our ability to, um, know what's good is harmed after that. And our ability to trust moral authorities 
is harmed after that. Yeah. And our understanding of ourselves is harmed after that. Now, this study was focused mostly on people who had, who had been abused, but it also mentioned some people who are like one or two steps removed from that. Well, you'd go one or two steps removed from any Catholic in the United States, and that's pretty much every Catholic in the United States has been yeah. one or two steps removed from clerical sexual abuse. And I read that and I'm like, I think there's something related to deconstruction here where when you're confronted with the reality of the sinfulness that that is in the church, the thoughts uh, that you had about the church being good have to, have to be deconstructed. And that causes or can cause moral injury. Like there's a real harm there. Yes. There's, there's liberation, but there's real harm at the same time. Um, and like you said, I think a lot of people emphasize one over the other. <clears throat> but you're able, I think, to acknowledge and navigate both of those. Well, and I've experienced both, you know. <laughs> so um, on the on the liberation side, you know, discovering God, that God is not uh, an, a, a violent tyrant who commands genocide is quite liberating. <laughs> You're like, what? He, you know, God is actually good. But then on the other hand, also the harm side. So, and some of that harm can happen through perpetrators, but also just experiencing life as trauma. So in my case, what happened was there's this a whole series of tragedies in our church involving overdoses, suicides, a gruesome murder, a an abduction. You know, like it was the people we were ministering to, the, their world kind of brought that about. And then all the disabled people, our church was one, one third of the church were people with disabilities in full-time care and you're looking at their broken and twisted bodies and, and 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 then the traumas around these these other folks um uh who who are dying around me and it was starting to happen like weekly and and then you even begin to deconstruct your image of god and that is first of all i thought he was horrid and then i found out he was wonderful but now I'm like, but are look at what's happening in the light of this evil. Are you good? And I had to, I had to, what was deconstructed is not so much God, but my notion of what a good God would do and look like and be. And I couldn't imagine how he, you know, so you get into the problem of evil and so on. Well, the worst part of that was I, in, in feeling overwhelmed, I did harm. So I'm, I, I'm, I can identify with uh, with those who live with the shame and regret and unresol unresolved relationships where um, where I didn't only ex undergo harm, I, I perpetrated it myself yeah. and in a, in a disqualifying way. And, and I would, I would shut up and disappear if I didn't sense a call to simply pay forward the mercy I received from my community and from the Lord through that process. So yeah, it's a, this idea of moral injury is is brutal and um we see it not only around uh, clerical abuse but also uh well all the other abuses in the world including including veterans coming home whose ptsd is a result not of what they experienced but of what they did yeah 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 i um and i don't know if you outright said this in your book or if it's what i walked away with but um I have at times, maybe many times, very much resonated with hashtag burn it all down. Yeah. Um, and I've had enough. The Lord's given me enough awareness to know that that is not my best self. Mm, okay. um, but I know that feeling very well. Um, 
And something that I walked away from your from your book with was this idea of like, um, just because I've been harmed, doesn't give me the right to get on a platform and then let my harm also harm the other people around me. Like mm -hmm. my own deconstruction, my own, uh, my own journey and my faith doesn't give me the right to like, you know, slash up other people's. Um, sure. And, I, you know, and I wouldn't want to rush past your rage. You know, I think I th there's a place for the imprecatory Psalms where we do say burn it all down, but we say burn it all down to the father. Yeah. And then we let him respond and we let him say, yes, I hear you. Um, we could do that. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, but do you, what, and what do you, I can tell you've done this because then you've seen the mal, how that can be lodged as malice in your heart. So the idea of these praying the Psalms is to get that out in the presence of God where, where it's not lurking in the background doing push-ups, you know, <laughs> and, and it, and where it doesn't become a source of shame, right? Yes. If you can bring it to the father, yes. you be vulnerable with it. Yes. It's not something you're hiding. Right. And this too is theosis. That's how it works. Right. Um, we come into the light with our darkness and the light shines on that darkness and we are transfigured. You know, in second Corinthians three, it says we all with unveiled faces, behold the Lord, behold the glory of the Lord. And we are being, and the word used there in the Greek metamorphosis, it's, we are being transfigured from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean to behold the glory of the Lord? It's like, it's, it's to come before him, but also with this stuff, with all of me, not just my, my, uh, you know, the presentable parts of Bradley Jerzak. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, no. And because of that, I'm able to experience the presence of God in the worst parts of me. Yeah. Yeah. My, I have a ministry partner who's, she's entered into a lot of reflection and invited me into it with this idea of Jesus's glorified wounds. Yes. Like he shows up a week later and, you know, talks with, uh, with Thomas and his wounds are still there. He could have yeah. fixed them. He didn't fix them. Like those wounds still exist, but those wounds are somehow glorified. Like he made the wounded part a glorified thing. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot there that needs, that uh, is deserving of reflection. Yeah. Well, that's the only God I can trust. You know, when in deconstruction, um, those who don't completely lose their faith in God often just revert to sort of a very ethereal spiritual spirit God or something, or even like universe and all of that. And I, I get that. But at the end of the day, Thomas and I have one thing in common. We didn't worship God Christ because of the glory shining from his eyes. It's because of the, we saw our wounds in his hands. And that he's glorified those wounds. That I haven't referred to it with that phrase before. That's beautiful. Glorified wounds. Hmm. That'll that has traction. Uh yes, not mine, my friends, not mine. Um, your friend. Um, and this relates to one theme in your book that um I that I found compelling was you're very critical of uh the different theodicies out there, the attempts people have made to give explanations to the reality of suffering and the reality of God's goodness. How can both of these things be true? Mm -hmm. um, and you criticize both because you say the answers, the easy answers, either delegitimize the reality of suffering yeah. or, or call into question God's goodness and they make him complicit in suffering. And the response that you give 
is um, both satisfying and not satisfying. And that you're like, both are true. Like you're like, it's a paradox. We can hold in one hand the reality of suffering in the world that is just horrendous and seemingly without any type of meaning or, or explanation. And that God is perfectly good. And we can hold both of those things. Um, you point to the cross specifically, um, and then more specifically, the when Jesus cries out, uh, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? As the, the, the climax of this paradox, this is God who is going through suffering that by all appearances has no meaning. Um, it is just the brutality of human violence. And he's also experiencing alienation from God, even though he is God. Um, so, yeah, have I have I explained your position right? And can you say more about this? Because there's something intriguing <clears throat> about this proposal. Yeah, so I owe all of this to Simone Weil. And, and she's a fascinating character who ends up, in my opinion, inspiring Vatican II. Um, because the papal nuncio in Paris, who first reads her journals, recognizes in, in her someone outside the threshold of the church as a real voice. And uh, he, that, that, that man became the Pope who launches. That John the 23rd. Yeah. And then, and then the follow-up Pope, what was his name? Uh, Paul the sixth. He said of the three main influences on him, Simon Weil was one of them. So in a sense, um, you know, I think they're responding to her at one level, at least. She's a factor, put it that way. Um, so <clears throat> what she says, she, she'll even go further than how you articulated it, perhaps, than how I did. She wouldn't say the goodness of God and the affliction of humanity are a paradox. She just says it's a contradiction. <laughs> and it, there's an infinite distance between the two, an infinite distance. And any attempt to span that distance using uh, by rationalizing will end up calling good evil or evil good and you 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 said that even better um but then she says let the contradiction act like pinchers that grab you and arrest you and throw you down so you, you, there's just no getting through this all you can do when you're thrown down is to look up and there you will see the crucified god and the cross spans the distance. No, no theology of glory can span the distance. Only the cross spans the distance and the whole timeline of human history, every act of violence, uh, every death, every affliction, every bullet, every rape, every lies on the timeline between his two wounded hands. And that timeline passes right through his heart. And then you realize this very real contradiction um, God's response, it's not an answer, but it's a response, um, is that the two intersect in that man. That the good, so you're like, the, I can't put together the goodness of God and the affliction of man, except in the hypostatic union. So that when I look at the cross, I see affliction to the nth degree, and I see the goodness of God revealed in Christ's response in how he dies. In intersecting in him, and, and and you're like, and then she says, so from from the from the wounds of the one who where where the contradiction intersects, from those wounds flows supernatural love that can heal the world, 
And where you fit into it is that affliction is like a hammer that has nailed you into the very heart of Christ. So um, Archbishop Lazar would say, and this is where we get the, the co-suffering love of God for us. So abandonment isn't the last word, it, um, but it's, it's where Christ takes up our sense of alienation. He bears it, and then quoting Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You carry on through the chapter, and the testimony of the one on the cross is he has not despised the affliction of the afflicted one. He has not turned his face away. You know, and then, of course, for Paul, the apostle, it's, well, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is God, the Son. Um, so all of that, I, I guess I just went off on it because I love I, I that message saved my life uh, when I was ready to do myself in. And and that's why I'm utterly fascinated by and and committed to following Jesus. I don't have a plan B and I don't need one. It, I find I find that response unsatisfactory because I really like tidied answers. Yep. Bows. <laughs> but I find it incredibly satisfactory. It makes me think of um, one of Pope Francis's principles that he reiterates over and over is that realities are more important than ideas. Wow. And this response... Um, it fully addresses and like validates reality. Yes. Um, any other response invalidates reality in some way. Wow. Well said. Something. That yeah. And out. ideas, by the way, you know, you use the, he used the word ideas there, right? That's what we mean by deconstruction constructs, notions, ideas. No, the reality exceeds them every time. Um, so, yeah. Something that jumps out at me is you're talking about the glorified wounds, and I'm just letting that marinate for a second and um, listening to you gentlemen. And I'm trying to imagine actually the the response of the apostles to Christ appearing with the wounds still in his glorified body and the, the, the sense of um, not just shock, but of how do I like an inability to understand the, the seeming illogicality of a glorified divine being appeared retaining his wounds when thinking of like every myth and every story of, of when the gods would reappear after whatever might have happened, the last thing would have been a show or a sign of weakness or a sign of damage um, to their, their, their divine being or, you know, how they're presenting themselves. And then the apostles now trying to make sense of this. And I think one thing that does come from this, and this is resonating with me with everything y'all are saying is, um, uh, in so many of our constructions of where this world sits on, as you've said, like a timeline of development into, into God or, or growth into goodness, or this is a stopping point, or this is just a journey and we're here for a little while. And, and then we move on to greater and better things and we'll leave this behind maybe. And, and then Christ comes back and, you know, with this glorified body and he's got wounds. And the instant sense in my mind is this phase, this stage, this world, this experience of existence, it matters. And it matters so much that he he burned it into his divine uh, embodiment in, in a glorified 
in his glorified sense, which is supposed to be the most flawless, you know, expression of, of his being. And he comes back still bearing those wounds, which is, I think, an incredible consolation um, and a validation that this is not pointless. This is not a wasted part of, of being alive, but it has the things that we do endure um, have great meaning to him. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can even double down on that and say the glorified wounds in, in the risen Christ are a revelation of the eternal nature of God. This is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And who, so there's something eternal about this that now is instantiated in time and must be, or it's not real. But this is what, that the wounds are not signs of some flaw in the nature of God, but they are the eternal love of God um, uh, uh, transposed or diffused or something through, like, through, through human sin and rebellion and pain and, and all of that stuff. It's like, so in other words... The flaw would be if he didn't have the wounds, because love uh, is revealed, the perfection of love is revealed even as this self-giving, canonic kind of love that lays down its life. Um, and, and Simone Weil's idea is that somehow even this um, is, is part of the creation story, where, where God's self-giving love, that creation is an act of kenosis that comes to the nth degree in the, in the crucifixion. And so that's fascinating. I think, um, you know, Hans Urs von Balthasar, he, he engaged um, the, the work of the, of the Orthodox theologian, um, Sergei Bulgakov on this stuff. And, it, and, and it's just like, if you want to look at, at the kenosis of Philippians 2, where, you know, you are, this is not God in disguise temporarily becoming a, a wounded servant. No, this is an unveiling of, of perfect love. And it says something about us. I, um, in, I think it's the, uh, oh, it's one of the old creeds, Athanasian creed, maybe, um, where it talks about, it's talking about the incarnation. And it says, it's not that, it's not that, uh, God lessened divinity. It's that he elevated humanity into yes. divinity. So if Jesus has glorified wounds, like those wounds represent and are our wounds, like by his wounds, we are healed. Yeah. He has brought our wounds into glory. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well said. Um, oh, man. Okay. So any one of these points I want to spend an hour on. Um, but going back to the book, um, there was a couple more key moments uh, for me going through it. One was uh, you don't shy away from the, the reality and brutality of human suffering. Um, there's one story you share um, from, from the Holocaust where there's uh, a young girl uh, who was sent to the gallows and hung um, and is so small that uh, she has to hang there for forever, right, until she yeah. dies. And someone cries out, uh, where is God? And the response is, uh, he's hanging in the gallows. Um, 
I thought of this. I had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago who uh, works for the church and has experienced a lot of harm um, from uh, clerics and leaders in the church. And uh, I said to them, uh, Jesus always identified with those who are suffering and those who are marginalized. That's who he identified with, even though the person harming you, you know, is wearing a Roman collar and represents the church in some way. Jesus is identifying with you because you're the one in this moment, because you're the one who's being harmed. You're the one who's suffering. Um, that's really important to me, um, especially when I think about, yeah, this idea of when it's the church, when it's those who represent God who are doing the harming, knowing who whose side has got on in this. Um, so yeah, can you speak more into that? Well, I would first of all simply agree with you. Um, what came to mind as you were talking is that uh, when those of us who have represented God then do harm, that's a kind of identity theft. You know, we, when we represent Jesus to somebody and then break their boundaries, we're presenting a, a, a false image of God. And using and the Lord's name in vain in the worst exactly of that exactly that and this is true and you know in parenting um I'm now I'm now a grandparent too and I, I watch you know how I think I think children are hardwired in their spirits to trust that there is a God who's good and to trust their parents who represent that God who is good I think that's we're, that's born into us. So then the first time I betray my children in some way, you know, uh, or fail them, and which is so easy to do, you know, even inadvertently, but you also have this, the, you know, some more heinous crimes. But this is so damaging to children because, because now it, the, the very, let's say the very word father now becomes a toxic word. And the fact that God has, you know, that Christ calls his father, father, um, that name and, and the character of God are, are tainted by the misrepresentation. And so I see that in families and I see that in, uh, in clerics and, and even the fact that like that Catholic and Orthodox pre Orthodox and Anglican priests are called father there's a that associates them somehow with God the Father, so that every time we say the Lord's Prayer, it will trigger whatever kind of um, abusive relationship we've had with with those who've had that name. And and it to untangle that is difficult. To to bring healing to the trauma is difficult. Hard work for the client and for the therapist, and and even to you know, to to reintegrate those words. So we've got a lot. Of, we've got a lot of folks. They just can't call God Father anymore. And I'm like, I understand that, but I also um, I also would love to see them retrieve that word from those who've stolen it and misused it at some point, and 
I mean, this is basic apophatic theology. He's a father, but he's not that kind of father, you know? <laughs> um, in that, you also, um, oh man, uh, I have lots of thoughts. One is um, I have five kids. And uh, in, as you're speaking, thinking back on uh, how have I misrepresented God in that? in my role and uh, maybe I need to ask God for more mercy. <laughs> yeah, we can't not, it's gonna happen. And um, yeah, so I, I do the Jesus prayer quite a lot in my life um, uh, be, because if I, I go there, it can descend into shame or maybe it's already in shame and it's my way out of shame um, or something, but you know, shame has never helped this problem. In fact, those with, uh, let's say, sexual addictions who are trying to restrain those impulses um, by and by the grace of God will only restrain them by the grace of God. And the, the shame actually uh, can be an occasion for them wanting to medicate themselves with further abusive behavior or addictive behavior. So it's... A, um, <clears throat> Um, Lord have mercy. Yeah, I think um, I, I've benefited a lot in the past few years from reading Brené Brown's work on on shame, mm -hmm. and uh, her antidote is vulnerability. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And, Instead of hiding, I suppose, right? That's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like reading that as someone who's a lay minister in the church, I'm like, yeah, the antidotes first of all vulnerability before God. Um, because then there's no places of darkness. Um, yeah. but that first takes trust in God's goodness. Um, you can't be vulnerable with someone who you're afraid, uh, is going to harm you. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to move on. Um, I'll just say this, uh, you know, I wrote a book called a more Christ-like God and that's kind of part of it, right? It's like every image of God we have that, that is broken needs to be displaced because we have an image of God in the person of the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Yeah. So that, that can help us hopefully start opening our hearts up to the possibility that God is just like Jesus. Cause they are one, you know? Yeah. It took me. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you when it was January of 2019. Uh, I mean, I've been Catholic my whole life. I've been Catholic 30 years at that point. Uh, I've been a minister for six or seven years. Uh, and the, the Lord broke into my life and told me how good he was. Mm. I had heard that from other people my whole life. But it was like, it, it was it was grace. It was pure grace. And yep. that's when I believed it. And that's when mm. everything changed. Wow. Um, there's, there was a couple other points uh, in your book that I want to hit. One is um, you, you, you presented Jesus accurately as... Um, going outside the walls as going to those on the margins and not just ministering to them, but identifying himself with them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this resonates so much with uh, maybe the, the core message uh, of, of Pope Francis to the church is like, uh, we are a field hospital. We, yes. we need to open up the doors of the church, leave the security that we think we have and go to the margins, not just as an act of service, but because that's where Jesus is. 
that's where renewal from the church comes from. That's where our own renewal comes from. Um, so what does going to the margins mean for you? And how, how do we do that? Like, <laughs> uh, how do we go to the margins? What does that mean in concreteness, in reality, and not just ideas? Okay. Well, I'll start with the idea in that the, the phrase, let, let us go outside the city. Let's go to him outside the city is, is a reference in the book of Hebrews um, to the fact that Christ was crucified outside the city. And that this becomes then an image for me about if I want to find Jesus, it probably won't be in the thick of the temple establishment where the, um, you know, that had plotted to kill him in the first place. <clears throat> but, but that I that that I go to where the cross is and so then what does the cross look like in concrete terms what what is outside the city look like and I also connect there then in terms of I think Christ's guidance in Matthew 25 that you will meet him in the least of these um so he describes you know uh when you fed those who were hungry you were feeding me when you clothed the naked you were clothing me when you visited the sick and those in prison including the guilty in prison <laughs> um, you were visiting me and so whatever you did to the least of these you were doing that to me and so that tells me that um that that the marginalized in in those kind of categories are a very good example of where we might encounter christ and that was my experience for sure um one of the great breakthroughs in in my life uh, when i was in darkness and shame was i visited a, a um a coffee house that was run by people with disabilities from our church and you know that their coffee house was drawing twice as many people as our church was. It was awesome. And I went there, but I was lurking in the back, feeling very sorry for myself, a lot of self-loathing, self-hatred. And one of the guys on stage was playing a djembe. He had Down syndrome. And he saw me from the stage. And and uh, he, he left his djembe mid-song and came all the way down to the back and grabbed me by the arm and dragged me to the front row and sat me in the front row and then he sat beside me and he took my head in his hands and pulled it to his heart and began to stroke my hair and i bawled like a baby it was the first time i ever felt um you know i've had charismatic experiences and manifestations all of that but this is like i felt god comforting me and consoling me and i felt the great uh, the good shepherd finding me in my ditch. I, f I found, I found um, the father welcoming me home. And it was in that context, right? So um, this, maybe it's just quite selfish as of selfish of me, but I want to find God, the father, son, and Holy spirit. And I know where to look for them now. Um, it's sometimes God is hard to find at the center of power. <laughs> um, and this is what makes Francis such a anomaly that you would have such humility on the, on Peter's throne. But um, what is he saying? He's saying, look for those that he discovered in the margins in Argentina and the, among the poor and the sick and the oppressed. So I just like, if you want to find God, that's where you go look. And when you do, um, not to go as, as, as the sort of like, 
with the contempt of those who are, I'm a savior to those on the margins. It's like, no, I'm, I'm on a hunt for, for the Lord. And, and he's told me where to look for him. Uh, I recall a story from mother Teresa who would have her sisters, um, spend an hour, uh, in front of, uh, the blessed sacrament every morning. Mm. Um, and then go out um, and serve the poor in Calcutta. Uh, and I forget exactly how the story went, but but it was essentially, um, if 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 we've been given the faith to worship uh, Jesus in a piece of bread, we've been given the faith to worship Jesus in the people we find, mm. and to see, um, and to see our interactions with them as privileged encounters with the Lord and wow. not as service. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was St. Basil the Great probably, um, or St. John Chrysostom who said, um, if you can't find Christ in the poor, you won't find him in the chalice. Yeah. So it's a, like a, a negative version of the same point though. Um, we will find him in the poor uh, if we have eyes of faith. Yeah. Um, the last point from the book, um, and this hit me more more personally, um, it it was uh, I felt challenged. Um, you shared something from uh, your wife at one point, who said, and uh, I'll I'll read the quote from the book. So these are your wife's words. Uh, so many people who talk deconstruction just continually pick the scab on their wounds, and so the wound just keeps on bleeding. Few people seem to just let Jesus lay his hands on the wound. Um, picking at the at the scab feels really good. Oh man, as a kid, I loved doing that. All uh, the scabs from my bike accidents, and I just wouldn't leave it alone. And my mom would like just leave it, um, let it heal, right? Yeah. But in this context, it's like we're gonna need the healer to lay his glorified wounds on 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 that plate. But yeah, it can become addictive. Yeah. It feels really good to remember self defeating. Yeah, it feels it feels good to remember the harm and to get angry again and all of that. Um, and I did that for long enough to recognize that, you know, like that's becoming bitterness. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not just cathartic anymore. That's not just like venting the frustrations that I have anymore. It's like taking root and turning into. And I'm like, there's enough bitter. Well, it's Catholics. infected, right? Yeah, it's becoming infected. And there's enough bitter Catholics in the world that I don't need. I don't need to be another one of them. Um, but I really loved the simple, but profound invitation you gave or your wife gave was, have you just asked Jesus to heal it? Mm. Um, and I was like, well, crap. I don't know if I have. Mm. I don't know if I've just been, I mean, I've maybe thought that, I guess, maybe. Um, but like, have I really sat down and been like, this hurts, um, but I'm actually done with it hurting and I'm done picking at it. Can you just heal the thing? Yeah. 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 And that too is hard work. You know, some folks they've deconstructed prayer right out of, you know, like, well, I tried that. And where was he when I prayed last time? It's like, so you don't, you're not praying anymore. <laughs> and they're worried. They're, they're worried that the, that it's just going to be another magical incantation that doesn't work again. But it's like, at some point, this is a real and living person who loves us and cares about us. 
And for those who are watching or listening, you know, um, it's, I'm not saying it's a McDonald's drive-through where you order your healing and God does it on demand, but I am saying you can close your eyes. Here's a great Ignatian exercise just to let, let, you know, picture him in any of the gospel stories where he's healing someone and be the person he lays his hand on and welcome him to lay the glorified wound on your wound and just listen and watch with all five senses in the, in, in, inside your heart. Right. And uh, <laughs> I have a funny story for you about that. I, I was training people to do this and I got canceled from a conference that believed in healing. And I'm like, why are you canceling me? They said that prayer sounded too Catholic. <laughs> I'm like, if that's a Catholic prayer, sign me up, you know, <laughs> but, but really the simplicity of like, close your eyes, picture Jesus. There's his wound. Ask him to put his hand on it. Let him stay there. I believe that if we do that simple practice in prayer, it's going to become real to us and we're going to experience him drawing out the toxins and infection and pouring in the healing light and love that can transform us. And uh, um, I'm saying that as someone who's in practice where I've watched people do this and and being, being healed not only of their heart wounds, but like dramatic physical healings that uh, not enough that I can package it and monetize it, <laughs> but enough to go, oh, this is real, you know? And so I've seen a few blind people get their eyes sight back. I've seen a hunchback woman be healed. I've seen like um, fatal cancers going away once in a while. And I'm like, God, why can't I just snap my fingers? Like it doesn't work that way. But what, how it does work is whether you're healed of these, in these dramatic ways or not, it is always, always fruitful to invite him to lay his hands on you. And so I wish that Pope Francis had laid his hands on me when I visited the Vatican, but I can ask Jesus Christ himself to do it in prayer right after we get off our call, you know? And so I will. I'm reminded of um, uh, early in his pontificate, Pope Francis gave a homily. It was during Easter time or Pentecost around Pentecost. It's about the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm paraphrasing, the Holy Spirit makes our heart like Jesus's heart and our mind like Jesus's mind. Oh, wow. And that's theosis. <laughs> it is. And it's such a, for me, it was such a simple like conception of theosis where it's like, yeah. Uh, my heart, my heart's pretty beat up and wounded, but he, he's offering me his heart. Um, he's making my heart his heart, uh, which is such like that's become that has become my prayer uh, after communion at mass has become the prayer that I've taught my oldest kids who received first who've received first communion of like uh, like. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of yourself in the Eucharist and make my heart like your heart. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, You're catechizing me. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. We're going, uh, I, I think we're over an hour at this point. Um, so we like to end uh, our episodes with giving people some type of uh, practical takeaway. So um, if you're speaking with someone who is going through deconstruction, who um, 
as a friend of mine, the image she gave me was, uh, there's, there's all these loose, loose threads in my faith and I keep pulling them. And there's a part of me that's afraid that the whole thing's going to unravel. Mm -hmm. If that's someone's experience, what, what suggestions do you give them? You know, it would still depend on the person and their story, but I'm a Jesus guy at the end of the day. And so I'm like, um, you can pull those strings as much as you want. Um, when it all unravels, he's still there and he's for you and he's toward you and he's beside you and he's within you and he's not going to leave you. So um, pull the strings. And and uh, <clears throat> so I know some may need to hear a different response than that, but I think I think um, my my confidence in Christ as a real person in perpetual pursuit of us means that your deconstruction is welcome um but that will only work if if you're willing to have him as your companion if we go and hide from him in alienation um he'll be there too but you just won't know, you won't enjoy the experience of knowing he's there with you we do have a russian proverb it says this um when you've bottomed out or when you think you've bottomed out you will hear a knock from below and it's supposed to be anonymous and a very ominous proverb, but I'm like, no, and it's Jesus knocking. So even when you, when you descend into the very depths, um, even if you make your bed in Sheol, I am there, you know? So, and, and he's been there first. I was just, I was listening to yep. another podcast with uh, um, a theologian who studies Balthazar and that Balthazar has a reflection on Jesus's descent into hell. Yeah, Jesus has been there first. Yeah, and there's you, it's actually in that same book. There's the one reference that just changed me completely, um, where in some vision, Christ or God is is communicating with some mystic or something, and he said there are some places in in the soul that are so narrow that nobody can go there. Only I can. Not even this your own soul can go. Only I can fit in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. Is there anything that you'd like to add that you haven't been able to say yet or? No, I've just really appreciated it. Your hospitality and your insightful um, questions and comments uh, have made me excited to go think some more and pray some more and dig some more on, especially today on, on the glorified wounds. Is that, That's going to be my day. So thank you. Fantastic. Um, Brad, where can people find you? So there's bradjersak.com. Um, and then I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too, as, as Brad or Bradley Jersak. Fantastic. We're going to link to the, the Gospel and Chairs video, and we're going to link to um, uh, your book. Uh, Dominic, anything else? No, I think it's, Brad, it's been amazing having you with us. And for those who are, who are watching this, if you're enjoying this video, or you're watching it on YouTube, hit that like button so more people can hear and discover Brad's message if they haven't yet. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we'd absolutely love to meet you and just hang out with you. Come and join Paul and myself in Smart Catholics. We're the free online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations, unafraid of doubts and questions, kind of like this one, and we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity. Sign up today at uh, smartcatholics.com. Paul, if friends have a question or feedback, perhaps specifically for you, where can they go? 
Yeah, you can find me at uh, pumpforhatchinsgeneration.com. You can um, uh, subscribe for free to uh, this podcast and um, uh, other things that I produce. And um, you can also support me there, which is fantastic. Uh, you don't get anything for it except the joy of supporting me, but uh, it's very much appreciated. And it's true with that. Without all of your support, we wouldn't be doing uh, this sort of thing. So thank you again, Brad. And friends, till next time, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you.